Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God, receiving it with joy, but searching the Scriptures to find out whether or not these things are true. Peter said that there are those who twist the Scriptures. We want to make sure we're not twisting the Scriptures or allowing others to do that. This Q&A is a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Tucson. And our first question comes from a question from our study on Wednesday night, where we talked about, out of the book of Galatians, being able to overcome sin by pointing out the things that were, uh, or by focusing on the things that were really important. That is, walking in the Spirit, delighting in God. Instead of waiting until you face temptation, and then are overcome. The Bible says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's the passage we covered on Wednesday night. And we looked at delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart and God will bring forth your righteousness. We talked about Jesus saying, abide in me and let my word abide in you and you will have whatever you ask. Our desires will change if we will preemptively do today what we can do before we face temptation tomorrow. We can help ourselves to be able to face temptation and win by using our freedom to be able to edify ourselves and walk in the Spirit. So the question was asked, what other kind of things can I do to not be tempted or to face temptation and win? And I really like that question because it helps us to understand that when we are genuine Christians, we want to do what God wants us to do. And so the Bible does give us a few things for us to do. The Bible says that we are to pray, that we are delivered from the evil one, and not to lead us into temptation. That, of course, is the Lord's Prayer given to us by Jesus. So our prayer life ought to have something included about being delivered from evil and not being tempted. Having God work in our lives, that as he leads us, he doesn't lead us into temptation. So why we are walking in the Spirit, delighting in God, abiding in Him, and His Word abiding in you, we also pray that God would strengthen us, that we could overcome those sins. Also, the Bible tells us that we're to run the race that God has given us in Hebrews 12, laying aside every weight. These, again, are things that might not be sinful. They just weigh you down. It's not against the rules in the 100-meter dash to wear a fur coat when you run, but no one's going to do it because it because it slows them down. And so in the race that you're running for God, are you running it efficiently? Are you running it effectively? Do you need to lay aside weights? Is there something you're carrying around that is keeping you from running really well? And then it says, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. That is that we make a deliberate move to get rid of sin out of our lives because we know it entangles us. It easily entangles us. It is deceptive. And we justify our own sin, and we need to identify that and realize it and get rid of it because we are entangled by it. The Bible also says, flee temptation or flee the enemy. It says, resist Satan and he'll flee from you. So when he's tempting us as the tempter, we resist him and he flees from us. We also put on our shield of faith. That's believing God's word. And when he shoots his fiery darts at us, we use the shield of faith to put out the fiery darts of the enemy. And when we get all of our armor on, we stand and we pray. I believe that all of these things and more, taking our thoughts captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ, not just letting our thoughts go anywhere that they want to go, 
but actually doing the things that the Bible says in taking them captive, because this is spiritual warfare as well. The enemy wants you to fall into sin. The enemy wants you to be discouraged by sin. And so there are a lot of things that we can do, both on the negative and the positive. I like the positive. I like delighting myself in God, walking in the spirit, abiding in Christ and his word abiding in you. I like setting aside weights and the sin which so easily ensnares us. These are all positive things that we can do that don't focus on just stopping something. Joseph was willing to sacrifice to not sin. He wiggled out of his coat and it cost him prison time when a woman tried to seduce him. And we should be willing to sacrifice, doing whatever we can to make sure that we're willing to get rid of sin in our lives. And also remember that we walk in God's grace. Satan's tempting you and trying to get you to fall so he can discourage you. But God has grace and will forgive you. Just go to him. Let him know what happened. Confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now that's just a quick study on how to overcome sin. Uh, we could talk a lot more about it, a lot more about the specifics of overcoming it. Maybe you have something that you use in your life, that you have used in your life, that has helped you to be able to overcome sin. So uh, thank you guys, it's good to see you here. I'm glad to have you here. I hope that you guys are uh, blessed as we take time to really search God's word and answer questions by the lens of scripture. I wanna again, uh, thank you guys for joining us. If you're here for the very first time, you can ask your question. Just write question in front of your question, then write out your question. Make sure it makes sense and then go ahead and submit it. You can ask your question about anything, apologetics, uh, situations that you're in as a Christian that you would like some wisdom and help in. And trust me, I understand this. There are things that happen in my life that I like to call. I have people I call to say, this is going on. What do you think I should do? And it's good to have people that you can talk to. Biblical questions, concerns about scriptures, hard questions about the Bible. Uh, we'll, we'll take all of them. All right. So we have a question from Fact Check These Hands. First of all, Fact Check These Hands, good to see you. Uh, question, when we sincerely seek God's guidance on a particular decision, why, he, uh, why is he sometimes silent? He's testing us to see whether we will decide on our own. All right, thanks, fact check these hands. I appreciate that. When, um, when we're seeking God for guidance, I don't know, when you, when you search the scriptures, you see that God answers prayer in different ways. And rarely is it God speaking to you. When I'm making a decision, I don't know if God is gonna say yes or no about that decision. But I bet that we can find guidance for the decisions that you're asking in scripture. Now, if you're asking a question like, should my car be blue or red? I'm buying a new car, should it be blue or red? And you're seeking God and you don't hear anything. Maybe that's because it doesn't matter to God. If you're asking a question, should I treat my sister or my brother in this way? Talk about a little sister or brother. Well, the Bible gives us guidance there. Are you gentle? Is it in love? Do, or do you have to rebuke something? How do you do that? And so the Bible gives us direction. Almost everything that we have questions about, God, what should I do? We get some direction on. 
Now, when it came time for us to think about moving to Tucson, there's no way God's going to give us a yes or no. I believe that I was called to be a pastor. There's an opportunity to come and start a church here in Tucson. And um, so we prayed about it, but I still didn't know for sure because God didn't say, go to Tucson or don't go to Tucson. So I prayerfully made a decision. And even though I didn't hear anything directly from God, I believe God wanted me to go. And so I went believing that if it was the wrong decision, God could direct me, that God could, could step in. If I'm prayerfully, biblically trying to make the best decision I can, God's big enough to step in and cause me to stop making a mistake. Now, if you're waiting to hear a voice from God, for God to say to you, to your heart, or I, you're gonna, you could be waiting a long time because he's already given us a plethora of information in the scriptures about how we are supposed to live. And so if you are setting, and this is part of, and remember, I grew up in the Methodist church, and then I went to charismatic and Pentecostal churches, and they constantly act like they are hearing from God all the time. Like, you have a question for me? Uh, Yes, yes, God. Yes, Lord. Okay, I'll tell them. Yes. But I quickly learned that a lot of that can be hit and miss. And that a lot of times they weren't hearing from God at all. In fact, in my own personal life, God genuinely speaking to me, where I know it's God speaking to me, is really rare. It so happens that Tucson, going to Tucson, became one of those places where I knew God wanted me here. But it was through a series of events that took place that made me finally come to the conclusion that God is telling me, yes, I want you there. And I think, fact check these hands, if you really search the decisions that you're making, most of them can you can find guidance in the scriptures. If you can't find guidance in the scriptures, like my sister's marrying a man who she has been sexually intimate with, should I go to their wedding and support their wedding? Now, we can't find that in scripture. We can ask, what does love tell me to do? And you might get a couple of different answers. Love would tell you to not support it because you, their, their spirituality is more important. Love would tell you to support it and be there. And so you've got to seek God. But God's not, I don't think God's testing you to see if you're going to decide on your own. You have to decide. You have to. I mean, time's clicking on. You're going to either go or not go. So you have to decide. So you prayerfully make a decision and you believe that God can direct you. And if you make the wrong decision, that God can correct you. And so if you make a decision not to go because you're making a stance, first of all, I would say that's the extreme position. So you should hear from God before you decide not to go, that God clearly doesn't want you to go. The decision that most people would make would be to go and support them. And doesn't mean you support their sexual activity before they were married, but it means that you're going to support them. And so I think we could talk things through and come to that proper place. So um, what kind of things, fact check these hands, are you asking God for that you think God is being silent on? And he said, call out to me and I'll answer you. And God will answer us, but he's answered us greatly in his word. And I find that the Holy Spirit brings the memory of scripture. The Bible says the Holy Spirit was given, Jesus said, to remind you of all the things that I have taught. And I think that as I'm searching what God wants me to do, that I find him directing me 
to the things God has already said in his word. Maybe that's why it's so important to memorize scripture, to get it into your life, to really believe it and to um, and to hang on it. All right, so let me read your question again here. Fact check these hands, make sure I got it right. When we sincerely seek God for guidance in a particular decision, why is it sometimes silent? Is he testing us? And I would say, fact check these hands, that if God is only sometimes silent, that you're way ahead of the game. Because a lot of times he's silent with me. I think he's silent with other people. It's more of a rarity when he speaks to me clearly than it is, I'm talking apart from his word. His word is one thing and reminding me of his word, but it's more of a rarity that God speaks to me. Now I might think God speaks to me. I might say, I think think the Lord said this to me. I'm very careful to say, I believe and I think because I don't wanna be emphatic about God where God is an emphatic. I don't wanna speak for God when God hasn't spoken. I don't wanna say God told me when God didn't tell me. I wanna be sincere and honest about these things, realizing that if I go around saying God told me, I'm making a statement to people. God speaks to me, I hear God. And so you can listen to me as I hear God. I want to be humble in the way I present myself and that I'm no one special when it comes to God or God speaking to me. So I want to be directed by his word. I hope that's um, hope that's helpful. Fact check these hands. If you have a follow-up to it, then um, please go ahead and ask it. Uh, also, I was kind of pointed out that as I make my way through these, I miss some questions. Now, I'm not sure in the process of them being posted from Facebook or YouTube or Twitter, whether or not these questions are being posted in the proper order. So it might be that I go by them and then they get posted after that, which could be possible because we're, 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 we're bringing these all together from one place. Uh, however, I'm going to slow down a little bit, try to make sure that I get all of the questions. I think we had some questions asked last week, uh, last Wednesday that we didn't follow through on. So we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Are all religions somehow connected? and will usher in the Antichrist in one day um, come together. Also, I have heard um, divine feminine goddess is the harlot mentioned in Revelation. All right, so a couple of things here, Jari. Let's take them one at a time. First of all, are all the the religions somehow connected and will usher in the Antichrist to come together? So I think, first of all, let's see. I think first of all, all false teachings are connected. All false religions, all false doctrines, all false teachings, all false teachers, because they're false. Them being false makes them connected. We have the Antichrist and the false prophet and the beast that try to present themselves as something that they are not. There are spirits behind these deceptions. That's another thing in common. All false teachings have spirits behind them. We can go to the Old Testament and we can see God talking about the demonic forces behind the false gods and the New Testament talking about the demonic forces behind the false gods. Also, the Bible says in the last days that there's going to be deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So they are all connected. And yeah, I would not have any problem with thinking that these deceiving spirits and these doctrines of demons would not all be working together towards the Antichrist. 
I think they would all be connected. And I, I realize when you've got Hindu and Buddha and, um, and Islam, that it may look like there's no connection. And that's because in the world there might not be. And the enemy may be using them to get at each other's throat. A lot of, a lot of violence has been done in the name of religion. And so, yeah, I think that they are connected. And I think that God is using them to bring uh, us into that last days where there is that great deception. Um, the divine feminine goddess is the harlot in Revelation. Um, we need to do, uh, we need to come in and do a little study on the harlot of Revelation. Um, it's Babylon and it's mystery Babylon. So that's a mystery and a mystery is going to be hard to figure out, hard to understand. It's like the riddle 666, which might not be as hard to understand as we think. The, the mystery Babylon is destroyed in an hour. And, and the merchants who have been made rich weep off of her. And it seems to be that financial system that enriches the Antichrist and the false prophet. And compared to a harlot, because she'll do anything for money, because that's the picture that God's trying to paint with her. The divine feminine, um, very new agey, concept and word, and I'm not saying that it doesn't have its roots way back in um, Astaroth worship, Eshtar. Um, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying the, 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 I think it is connected to the new age and the false gospel and progressive Christianity. I think all of these things are connected and whether or not the divine feminine is seen in certain places, I don't know. But I do understand that a lot of false teachings, New Age movement, progressive Christianity, have that kind of feminine aspect to it and want to make God a woman. And this is why, and God, of course, is spirit, right? He doesn't have flesh and blood. But in the shack, the book, The Shack, they make God a woman. And that becomes problematic because in the Bible, he's a he. And that's not to say that he has a body but he presents himself as a father to us and not, and, and not a mother. And so I think that the divine feminine kind of makes its way into certain things and creates certain problems, all right? And uh, that's not to say that there isn't some positive things in the book, The Shack. It's just to say there's some questionable things for sure and have caused some, some difficulties and some problems. So thank you, Jari, I appreciate that. Uh, if you have a follow-up, the follow-ups are welcome. Um, I, uh, I'll try to make sure I see him this time. Follow up was one of the ones that I missed the last time. All right. So we have a question from Andy and Tanya question. If we believe in Jesus and are born again, and if we sin without repentance, can we still go into heaven? If it's repenting sin, such as fornication. All right. So, um, let me just go ahead and break down your question again. I want to make sure I get the whole sense that we need a little nuance here with this one. Um, if we believe in Jesus and are born again, and if we sin without repentance, can we still get into heaven? If it's, if it's repenting sins such as fornication. All right. So let's, um, let's consider the fact that Just want to be, I want to be careful as I present this. 
because I don't want to judge whoever may be, whatever might be behind this question or whoever might be behind this question. So you may be thinking of someone else, um, Andy and Tanya, that you know that isn't repenting from it and asking about them. And I want to be careful in judging someone's heart. First of all, if we believe in Jesus and are born again, I mean, it's genuine, it's happened, it's for real, then we want to do what God wants us to do. Does it mean we always do it? No. But Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. <clears throat> in 1 John, it says, if you love him, then you'll keep his commandments. And so there's something about being a Christian where we are transformed when that spirit is brought to life and we are suddenly interested in the things of God that we want to do what God wants us to do. But can a Christian sin? Of course. Bible says in the same book, 1 John, if you say you have no sin, then you're a liar and the truth ain't in you. And I love how he double downs on it. You're a liar and the truth ain't in you. So yes, we sin. Can a believer sin in severe ways? Yes, unfortunately. They can be severe sin. But let's not confuse forgiveness with consequences of severe sin. The Ravi Zacharias case is, is one of these. Um, we found out things about Ravi after he had died that he was involved in sexual sin. And it's kind of divided Christians over this concept. Could he be forgiven if he was in such sin? And if he died with it going on, then was there real repentance? And the truth is questions like that can only be asked by God. I can't tell. We don't know. We could look and we can make a judgment, but judgments are always, we want to be careful. And so if you really believe him, then you're going to repent. If you really believe in him, you're going to repent because you're, you're following him. If you can sin and not be convicted, then your conscience has been seared with a hot iron. And if you don't want to repent, then the question has to be asked, did you ever really have a relationship with Christ? When, when you talk about um, without repentance, is it without remorse? Is it without guilt? Is it without conviction? What does this lack of repentance look like? And then it's something like fornication, which is a severe sin, something that needs to be repented from. And so it's really hard. If I were, it would be easier for me if I were talking to someone and they said, listen, I'm in sin and I don't really feel like repenting, what should I do? Or I could ask them questions about, all right, so we've got this scenario. So I could ask them questions about, do you want to repent? Do you feel bad about it? Do you feel sorry for it? Is it something that you want to do? Are you glad you sin? Have you harbored this thing? All of those would come into play with this question. So um, will you still go to heaven? I, I think to, at this point, you're playing roulette. At this point, it's like, have you sincerely followed him but are not repenting from a severe sin? And so then how can you be confident of that? And so the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith. And I don't know where I would go to if I was able to have my questions answered as I was questioning someone that had this heart or this attitude. And 
we might be able to really come to a decision on whether or not that person was genuinely saved and really go to heaven. But no one can go to heaven unless they are in Christ. And if they haven't made that commitment and aren't really in Christ, then I don't know if they're going to make their way to heaven. Uh, that's, I'm, you know, it's just, you can tell how careful I am because I don't know the variables that are in this question. All right, so thank you very much, Andy and Tanya. I appreciate that. We have another question from Ashley. Ashley, good to see you. Ashley says, I know when I was applying to jobs everywhere and praying, I got a sense of peace as soon as I applied for one and I ended up getting. I figured that was the Holy Spirit letting me know. Oh, that's just a statement, not a question. Um, I appreciate that. Did I miss your question? But yes, um, let me just go ahead and comment on that uh, since I brought it in. Yeah, um, the Bible talks about the Spirit leading us. And sometimes He can lead us. But what you want to be careful, Ashley, is that you aren't like looking for that sense of peace everywhere. Because sometimes doing what God wants you to do is upsetting. Sometimes there's, there's no peace inside. Sometimes when you're facing something that's difficult and hard, God brings that peace into our lives. And that's wonderful. But as far as using that peace as a guide to whether or not God wants me to do it, kind of turns into following feelings. And we want to follow God's word. And I realize taking a job is not following God's word. So I know that before you get upset. I'm not, I know that. Um, nevertheless, it's just, it's just, it's just got to be careful. And the fact could be confirmed. Well, I went to that job interview and I had this sense of peace and I got that job. Well, that's awesome. That's, that's a great thing. Somebody else says, I don't know which job to take. I don't have peace over any of it. And because there's no scripture that persuades them, your circumstances don't help them. Uh, the spirit of God doesn't bring us fear or, or is not a spirit of fear, but of a sound mind. So we could talk about some of those things, but we want to make sure that we are being directed by God, by the scriptures specifically. And a lot of times it's not what job you take, but it's how you live during that job. I'm not saying that God might not have a job for you, just to pinpoint a job you want you at. Maybe, but maybe not. But God knows how I want you to live in that job. There might not be a car he wants you to buy. He can have certain ones that he doesn't want you to buy. But I know how he wants you to drive while you're driving that car. Sometimes we're looking for what car do I buy? And God's like, I don't care. Which one do you want? But I want you to drive this way. And so we get direction. All right. So thank you. I appreciate your input on that. Um, Barbara says, question. I recently heard a minister say that God was genderless neither male nor female. He stated this because he is spirit. He stated that the fact that we used father in a grammatical, in um, your father is grammatical. Your thoughts? Yes, thank, Bar thank you, Barbara. I appreciate that. Uh, so let's just think about how God presents himself to us as you read it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. When the Bible describes God, it will talk about him having hands. It'll talk about him touching us. It'll talk about him walking in the garden. I heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. 
So these are ways, and I can't remember the term right now, but there's a term for describing something in a human form that maybe isn't a human form. Like you would describe compassion in a human way. And is the Bible using that when it says that God's walking in the garden? Or was this literally uh, an incarnation of Jesus or a Christophany, a Christ appearance in the garden of Gethsemane? Was it um, when, when Moses was put in the cleft of the rock, when God talks about holding us in his arms, um, when God talks about being a shepherd, his rod and staff comforting us. These are all ways in which we understand. The Bible also says that God hides us under the shadow of his wing. So is God a bird? I would say is God an eagle? God's got a chicken? That way he hides us under, does he literally have a wing and feathers? And so the Bible does use these terms. And these terms do speak of something that perhaps God does not have. However, Jesus is God. Jesus became a man and rose from the dead in a glorified body that one day we are going to be like. And so Jesus has taken human form. And so quite literally, God was a man. In the beginning was the word, the word became flesh and the word dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory as of the only begotten of the father. And he, then the word became flesh and dwelt among us, as I said. So that's really important. So if you're gonna try to talk about God in the feminine sense, it's gonna be hard to do because Jesus came as a man. Could he have come as a woman? I don't know, maybe if culture was different, Maybe God had set things up different from the beginning, but Adam was created and then Eve. And it seems God in his authority presents himself as male. Is it talking just in grammatical senses? I think this is a point where you could argue and you could discuss. Uh, maybe just point of a discussion. We could discuss it. It's the kind of thing that pastors could get together and start talking about and start pointing out scriptures and then go, wow, well, that's some pretty neat stuff. But when it comes down to it, we say, my father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We say, thank you, father, for all that you're doing in my life. We receive the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry out, Abba, father, which is that, that close, intimate relationship with the father. And there's a couple of different ideas for Abba, by the way. It could be like a child who crawls into a daddy's lap or some think it's a more formal way in which an adult son respects and submits to the father. Either way, it speaks of intimacy and closeness. Maybe even closer if it's that adult son that submits to the, the intimacy of a father or an adult daughter who submits to their father out of respect for who they are and says, Abba. Either way, it's still father, it's still male. And so this is all kind of, um, it's all out there, we could talk about it, it's kind of neat. But in the end, God presents himself as a man, even though we don't believe that God as Elohim, the Father in heaven, actually has a body, okay? Unless you're Mormon, then <laughs> you believe it. But other than that, you don't, all right? Um, 
let's see. All right, so um, thank you very much, by the way, for your question. I really do appreciate that. Um, we have a question from Psychman. Psychman says, uh, how widespread is replacement theology? Do Wesleyans believe it? If you know personally, I find it offensive to suggest our dad breaks his promise. Uh, what you say, thanks, uh, Mr. Robert. Thank you, Psychman. I appreciate that. All right, so let's talk about this. Um, how widespread is replacement theology? Uh, it was very widespread in centuries past. And almost all Reformed theology is going to believe in replacement theology, or covenant theology, as they would call it. So I would say very widespread uh, in, in the Protestant realm. When you look at more independent churches, non-denominational churches, Southern Convention Baptist churches, uh, Calvary chapels, which are independent churches, you're going to find it not widespread at all. You're, you're going to find that there's, there's more and more people that are born after Israel became a nation that see all of the promises in the Old Testament to Israel going back into a, a, the land after being desolated and see that it came true exactly as it says. And so more and more people are moving away from replacement theology. But, you know, I say this at the beginning of every one of our podcast Q&As, that we want to search the word of God so we can know what we believe instead of having a confirmation bias. This is what I believe, and so I want to find scriptures that back it up. And so putting away confirmation bias, I think it's hard to come to the place of replacement theology. Now, replacement theology, for those of you who don't know, is the belief that God set Israel aside forever because we know he did set them aside for a time, but they believe that God set them aside forever. I'm going to pull up a scripture while I'm talking about this, um, that God set them aside forever and that the church has become Israel. And they use passages that talk about who is really Israel in the book of Romans for real Israel. Who's real Israel? Israel are those who really believe in him. And not talking about Jews or Gentiles, but those that have faith by God are ruled by God and they're using the word ruled by God for that very purpose, right? So they will make arguments and, and their arguments are, and, and they came around when Israel wasn't a nation. And quite frankly, I personally believe that this particular doctrine came about because they had to make sense of what the Bible says about all the promises of Israel during the last days. I mean, the tribulation period is the time of Jacob's trouble, right? Let's see. All right. So, um, and, and all of the promises, 144,000 Jews, 12 tribes, uh, males, Jews from each of the tribes of his tribes of Israel in the tribulation period. And so because Israel wasn't a nation and they were scattered around the world and because anti-Semitism was great and we see that with Luther, we see it some with Calvin, uh, really with Luther in his later, later life, hated the Jewish people. And so it's not hard for us to see that anti-Semitism or that replacement theology came out of an anti-Semitic realm. I, um, I don't erase many comments on, the, um, on, on YouTube. Um, I do periodically, if they're really rude, I just figure, you know what? We need to be gentle to one another. 
And if you can be nice, great. If you can't, and fine. But I did erase one a, a little while ago that was just anti-Semitic. And I just thought, you know what? And, and maybe I should have engaged in it and pointed it out, but I was really frustrated with it because this replacement theology can end up being anti-Semitic. And I'm not saying just because you believe in replacement theology that you're anti-Semitic. I want to be careful, okay? I'm not judging you. I'm simply saying in that realm, there are those that are anti-Semitic and it becomes problematic because God had set aside Israel for a while. Jesus told the parable right before he's arrested about going out to the highways and byways and calling in those who need to be saved. Uh, who are you calling in those who need to be saved? So he set them aside. Now, this is Romans 9, 25 and 26. I want to pull this up on the screen for you. All right, let's take a look at this. So here he says, um, I do not uh, want you believers to be unaware of this mystery. So it's a mystery that God would spread them, send them out through the world and bring them back in of God previously hidden. Oh, I'm in the ESV again. Let me just switch while you guys are watching. I'm the Amplified again. I want to go back to the New King James. All right, so let's go to 25 now. All right. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. But blindness in part, because there are Jews who get saved, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Note there, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That means that God's going to restore them. And the Bible talks about in Zechariah 12.10, and I will pour out a spirit of mercy and grace on Jerusalem. And they will mourn for me as one who mourns for an only son. They will, they will, they will all come back to Christ and it will be during the tribulation period. Jeremiah tells us that the tribulation period is a time of Israel's trouble. As God brings them back to himself, he takes them through difficulties. So they finally return and begin to worship and serve him and how incredibly powerful that is. So, um, yeah, in answering your question, psych man, uh, it's pretty broad. Do Wesleyans believe it? Um, there's a big difference between Wesleyans and Calvinists. And I think that Calvinist replacement theology, I mean, Calvinist and Reformed theology are going to believe it more. Uh, in the heart of Wesleyan theology, although I'm somewhat familiar with it, I can't remember now whether or not there's a lot of replacement theology in there. I would believe that there would be some because Israel wasn't a nation. And it was just kind of, it had, that replacement theology said just kind of become received. What do we do with all these passages that talk about Israel in the last days? Of course, Israel is a nation today, so we don't need that. So I find it, uh, I find it uh, you say you find it offensive to suggest that, that our dad breaks his promises. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I always say, try doing that. You got kids? Promise one a bowl of ice cream and give it to the other and see how that works out. There's just a, an inherent sense of unfairness in it. And God will keep his entire word towards the, ch the children of Israel. He will never forget them. Even as the Bible says, I will never forget you, my people. I have carved you on the palms of my hands. All right. So thank you very much, uh, Psych Man. I appreciate that. Good to see you. Uh, we have a question from Empress Kimberly. Uh, 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 Kimberly uh, says, hi, Pastor. Please know you are appreciated. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I walked away from God and demanded he leave hurt, heart, hurt, hurt, hurt. I was angry. 
and demanded, he, okay, I walked away from God. All right. I was angry over an abusive marriage and divorce. Does this fall into Hebrews 6, 4 through 6? Okay, Kimberly, thank you very much for sharing. Uh, I'm sorry that you were in an abusive marriage. I know that that is really tough. I know it's hard. Uh, let me go ahead and pull up Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and we're going to take a look at this, and we're going to ask it in that in those questions. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Let me find it. Here we go, 6, 4 through 6. All right, let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of heavenly gifts and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and leave this up here, but I'm going to go and um, go back and talk about this. All right, Kimberly. So, hey, I walked away from Christ as well. And I walked away from him when I was 18 years old. The church I was attending, the pastor there had an affair with the secretary. He was a young guy, 25 years old. I was, again, 18 years old. Um, I came in, there's some older guy teaching. He was, I don't know, in his 40s. <laughs> Age is, is all you know, perspective. And, um, I said, if this is what Christianity is, I don't want it. And I called a buddy of mine who was a mentor to me and his wife answered and said, he left me for another woman. You haven't heard this. And so now not only did my pastor have an affair and was no longer in the pulpit, but now one of my, the, the, the man who had been my mentor had had an affair. And I said, if this is what Christianity is, I'm done. And I walked away. And when I came back, I, um, God came and got me. There's no doubt. And when I recommitted my life to Christ, I went to church for a couple of weeks and nothing happened. The sermon was fine. The worship was fine, but nothing was going on in my heart. And I thought perhaps I'd done this, that I'd gone too far, that I'd done too much when I walked away from God, that God didn't want me anymore. And it was impossible to renew me to repentance. A little while later, I got a call from a cruise buddy of mine, uh, Keenan Boer, and he said, Robert, I got saved. He had no idea I knew what he's talking about. We were, you know, sinners together. Robert, I got saved. And uh, you got to go to church with me on Friday night. And I went to church with him to this bizarre charismatic church that I had attended before. And uh, there in that pew, God said, time for you to come home. And he brought me home. So Kimberly, there's a key here that is really, really important in this passage. This passage is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to really grasp and understand. And I'm not sure that everyone has clarity. We talk about, I think that this is connected to the unforgivable sin, to those who have a lot of knowledge and reject and reject and reject and reject. Jesus talked about that he'll leave the 99 and go after the one who goes astray. So we do know that believers go astray and that going astray is not the unforgivable sin. So let's go back here and look at this a little bit closer with those things said. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away. So it seems that they were connected. Now, remember, these are Jews 
who are going back to the law after receiving Christ. They, they, they may be people like the scribes and Pharisees who blaspheme the Holy Spirit and they crossed a line and it was impossible for them to get saved anymore. This may be the same group of people that look Christian, act Christian, and talk Christian. Maybe they're, they were not a genuine Christian if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. So the impossibility spoken of in the beginning of verse five is to repentance. So if you want to come back, then you haven't committed the sin. And that's really important. Let's go back to it again. For it is impossible for those. And then we go down, it says, uh, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again themselves, the son of God, and they put him to open shame. So if you go back, there, there may have been a unique kind of sin that could have been done when the temple was still around so that you have Christ as your savior and sacrifice and you stop going to the temple. And now you all of a sudden start going back because of persecution, because you miss the sense of what the temple was all about and you start giving sacrifices again. And maybe that's why in another place in Hebrew it says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. You think you can go make sacrifices again? There's, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the sacrifice for sin. The temple would be destroyed in 70 AD. The book of Hebrews was written between the time Jesus was crucified and the time of that destruction of that temple. So you had a very unique set of Jewish people who could go to the temple, who had to decide when they got saved, how Jewish am I? What do I do? What don't I do? I think we see Paul going through, he lives in that era, and I think we see Paul going through this very question. So how does this apply to you? An abusive relationship. Uh, you become bitter towards God because God could have stopped it, but God didn't, right? And, and we know that God allows things. God could stop anything. Maybe he doesn't cause it. Maybe he does. I don't know. I don't want to speak for God, but we don't know. And so we get bitter towards God and we walk away. That's not the unforgivable sin. You haven't committed that. You come back to him. You say, Lord, I'm sorry. I love you. I want to live for you. I give my life to you. And you receive his forgiveness. The Bible clearly says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you confess, he will be faithful. This person, whoever they are, would not want to confess. They would never confess their sins. And so if someone says to me, I think I've committed this um, and I, it's impossible for me to be forgiven. And I say, well, why don't you pray with me? And we'll ask Christ to forgive you. And they say, no, I don't want to. I don't want to do it. Well, then maybe you committed it. Well, that's not fair. I, 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 I can't come back to him. Well, then repent. Ask him to forgive you. Well, I don't want to. Well, then maybe you committed it. But what if that, that's not fair. Well, I don't know what to tell you. You might have committed it if you don't want to come back, especially if it's been a long time and you've had multiple opportunities to come back. Whatever this, this sin is, which seems to be very rare, and as I said, may well be something that could have only have happened to them between the time of the temple and um, the crucifixion of Jesus and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, where there was no longer sacrifices made. There, there could not be those who would go and make a sacrifice again. All right. Um, so I, I know people pretend that they have these verses all 
wired 100%. Rarely have I found someone that I think has it wired 100%. And I find myself vacillating on a lot of the warnings in the book of Hebrews. And they are, they are unique for sure because they had a temple and we don't. And these were Jewish people who had come to Christ and were going back into Judaism. And so it's something very unique that we might not be able to duplicate today. All right, Kimberly, um, again, sorry about the difficulties, but come to Christ, walk with him. Um, when I came back to the Lord, uh, God restored me, made all the changes in me again. And I'm not saying you haven't come back to him, but what the devil likes to do is, is whisper in your ear, you might've committed this sin. You know, you knowingly walked away from God. You were bitter towards him. You might've said some things in your heart about God, but you know what? God can take all of that. God can handle all of that. Just come to him and apologize. Ask him to forgive you and then seek him. All right. Thank you, Kimberly, for your question. I really do appreciate that. It's good to see you guys here. Uh, good to have all you guys joining us. If you're here for the first time, really glad you're here. Uh, we do this every Wednesday and Saturday at four o'clock. It is a supplement to the teachings at Calvary Tucson. If you watch any of our videos or any of our teachings, um, then you are free to ask questions about those teachings here. Just give us the reference and we'll go from there. All right. So we've got just a little bit more time, about another 10 minutes. Um, we have a couple more questions. Uh, fact check these hands. I may come back to your question um, because I, we take one at a time, really kind of make our way through it. And if there's more uh, time at the end, I'll come back. All right. So um, you can do what um, what Jari does. Ask like, three questions in a row. Sorry, Jari. Don't mean to pick on you. Love you. All right. But um, yeah. Um, so we're, we look at taking one question uh, per person just to make it through. Uh, these are only an hour long. So we want to make sure to get to a lot of different questions from different people. All right. Um, remember that question too. You can write it out next time. Um, fact check these hands if you're, if you're with us next time on Wednesday. Um, it's a, it's a good to see you. It says Galatians 520. I'm not sure I understand contentions from this scary list. Uh, would a big online argument be an example. I get into a few fiery discussions on some social media. All right, it's a, I, I appreciate your, your openness here and your heart on this. Um, I think uh, social media is one of those places where you can really get into it because people don't have any filters. If you and I are talking and you're looking me in the eye, it's harder to get into really contentious arguments although it happens. And I, I, I try not to let that happen. When someone comes up to me after a service and they are contentious, they are not in a spirit of gentleness and meekness. I tell them, let's just stop this. And I'll tell them, you can say anything you want to, to me. I'll listen to anything you've got to say, take any criticism. Trust me. I, I'm, I, I'm not, I'll, I'll do that. I'm fine. It may be true, but nothing needs to be done out of a lack of love. And since we're supposed to do everything out of love, I would say being contentious is not. So what is contention? It's getting into an argument with someone, an argument that is um, maybe a little over the top. And then being contentious is a person that is prone to get in these arguments. So the Bible says in the Old Testament that rather live on a rooftop than in a house with a contentious woman. 
Now, that's been used as a joke many, many times. And I don't mean it just to, to sound funny, but if you've ever lived with a contentious, per, contentious person and you don't have to be a woman to be contentious, men and women are both contentious, then you know that it can be a real problem. And you're like, what's going on? I can tell you in my counseling ministry over the years, talking to people where one is contentious is very, very difficult. And it is definitely of the flesh and not of the spirit. So I would check myself and ask, am I being contentious? Um, I was, um, remember I have online discussions that happen all of the time through YouTube. And um, there's one particular guy that wanted, that was a non-believer, he was an atheist and probably does this, goes to Christian sites and stirs the pot. So he had said some things and, and some people had responded that were upset at what he had said. And um, I could just tell that he was poking the bear. You know, he's just like in a zoo. He's poking the bear, he's trying to get a response. And um, I said to him, listen, if you are gonna be contentious, I'm gonna delete your your post. I, You can say anything, again, we can have a conversation, but if you're just going to, um, if you're gonna try to just make people angry so you can argue your points, then this isn't going to be the place for it. And uh, he didn't believe he was contentious. He came back and said, I'm not picking fights. I'm not, you know, he didn't see it, but he's a non-believer. But he did change his tone. And I don't know that after he changed his tone, anybody was that interested. So people who, when they want to to pick a fight, they know how to ask things in such a way to pick a fight. But you, it's our child of the living God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Gentleness is supposed to be what, how you are, are really respond. So I would walk in the spirit, double read your, your comments, ask yourself, am I being led by the spirit here? Ask yourself how to soften it, how to say it in a more gentle way. Is this a, that a thing that I'm, I'm asking out of love? And remember, it's those that practice such things. So if you're a contentious person, yeah, you need to repent of that and turn from it. If you are contentious once in a while or in a certain situation like online, then maybe you need to change something that that makes it unhealthy. What is it about online that gets you in the flesh? Because we could both argue, and I think we would both agree, it's that when you're being contentious online, it is not being led by the spirit. You can be upset, you can say things strong, but contention is another thing. And so what is it about online that makes you lack that control? And maybe you're, that you wouldn't do when you're eye to eye, or would you if you're eye to eye? So those are some good thoughts. I think some thoughts to have as we interact with one another online. Just know it is a place where there is a ton of people that are looking for fights because they can say it with anonymity and they can walk away. All right. So I want to slow down again, make sure as I'm making my way through here that I'm getting all the questions. Again, really good to see you guys. Glad to have you here. This is our uh, TruthQuest podcast. It's a podcast. You can get this wherever you get podcasts. And when you get a podcast on TruthQuest podcast, you're going to get our full-length teachings. You're going to get our hot topics, which are just shorter, more to the point teachings, and um, and these Q&As. And you can listen to them while you're driving. Listen to them at your leisure. All right. So, um, David, we have a question from YouTube. 
Uh, David says, um, what advice can you give me, my brother, who is struggling? What kind of advice can you give me? My brother who is struggling with his marriage, particularly with intimacy, because his wife seems to be hurting from a trauma when she was younger. All right. Um, um, David, I really appreciate that. Um, not massively uncommon. Uh, I wish I knew how long they were married. And the the things that they, that she struggled with before need to be somehow separated from the loving relationship that she has now. And for your brother, it probably would be good if you guys went to go see a biblical counselor. And I, I know that sometimes it's hard and it's expensive, but it's worth talking these things through. And a good biblical counselor is going to be able to help you. Again, I've done a lot of counseling over the years. I don't do any now, but I've done a lot over the years. And I've been in situations like this before where you start talking about things and you start giving some homework to do and some things for the husband to do to help the wife to feel more loved and separated from that trauma that was before. And then you replace new experiences with those new feelings and hopefully break the connection with the old feelings. Also, I mean, just being honest, sometimes there are, there's bitterness, there's unforgiveness, there's unresolved issues, bitterness, unforgiveness, unresolved issues can make intimacy really difficult. And sometimes someone uses things that happened to them in the past as an excuse. I'm not saying that that's what she's doing. I'm just saying sometimes because there are barriers. And so when you're, you're dealing with a couple that are having intimacy issues, it's really interesting before you're a Christian, before you get married, you got all this temptation. Then after you get married, there's temptation because you, you want to have sex, but they're not having sex. And um, there's reasons for that. And it's important to explore those reasons. One of the biggest ones is unresolved issues. Somebody says something, doesn't say they're sorry about it, won't, refuses, just absolutely refuses to give any legitimacy to the person that says it. Instead of saying, I really am not doing that, I promise, but I understand how it made you feel. Like, let's just say that you were talking with a waitress. She thought you were flirting. And then you say, I wasn't flirting, that's silly, it's ridiculous, that's ridiculous, I'm not even talking about it. And so you don't let her resolve that issue. And every time you talk to a woman, she thinks you're flirting, but you refuse to talk about it. Now that's an unresolved issue. That's gonna cause problems with intimacy in the future because it's bitterness arises out of those unresolved issues. And now they don't, they don't want intimacy. And it can be male or female that, that this desire for intimacy with that person drops off. Instead of saying, let's resolve this. Me and my wife, and yeah, we've been married for almost eight years now. Um, and we got married when we were older. My late wife passed away. And um, we just, we made a decision that we were not gonna have unresolved issues between us. 
that rather than letting an unresolved issue stay, that we would talk about it and get it resolved. Doesn't mean it's always easy to bring things up. It doesn't mean it's always easy to take care of them, but that is the healthiest way to have a marriage. To have a marriage any other way is unhealthy to have unresolved issues. So you could say things like this in my, in my um, example. Um, I don't think I'm flirting. I promise. I don't think I am. But who knows? Maybe, you know, maybe deep inside I am. I mean, the heart's deceitfully wicked. So maybe I am. And whatever it is that makes you feel uncomfortable, I'm going to try to get around that. And I'm sorry that I've made you feel that way. I don't want to make you feel that way. Could you perhaps consider that if I'm having a conversation with a woman that it's not flirting? And is there something that I'm doing while I'm talking that makes you think that it's flirting? And so you start to resolve it to where, I mean, it would be unreasonable for her to say that you can never have a conversation with a woman. It would be, especially if you're giving a, a food order, it would be unreasonable for you to say that, I never would have a, an impure thought about a woman. Hey, we, we know the heart of man, right? Not just saying man, but woman as well. And so when you take these things and you put them together and you try to resolve those issues, then you find out that the intimacy can be dealt with. Now, if she really is having trouble because of prior trauma sexually, then counseling, I think, is, is really necessary. There's no magic scripture you can take that's going to help you out. You've got to be able to go in and talk these things through. Now she might want to talk with a therapist or a biblical counselor, biblical, biblical therapist, biblical counselor by herself. She might want to go with you, probably want it both of you together as you're able to really resolve these things. And um, they're going to be able to give you some advice and help you to set up dates and times for intimacy that you guys are really open and can, can work those things out. Um, there, there's a lot more we could talk about with this issue because it's widespread. And it's widespread because the enemy doesn't want you to have that good sexual relationship with your, your wife or husband. The enemy wants to destroy it. He doesn't want that good intimacy between you. And so he's looking for ways he can do it. And so he tempts us. And um, we could talk a lot more about it, but I'm out of time. Um, we could certainly bring up those questions again. It's good to see you guys. Glad you could join me. Uh, we have some more questions here. Um, if you could come back on another one of our Q&As and ask those questions. Again, we have a service in about an hour. We're going to be talking about the last days and birth pains and what kind of things signify the birth pains. I think, by the way, we're in the middle of a birth pain right now. Jesus said, these things are the beginning of sorrows. And the sorrow word for sorrows is birth pains. And at the end of the age, something's going to be born. The tribulation period is going to be born. The rapture of the church is going to happen. Jesus is going to return at the end of the tribulation period. But birth pains are going to come and go. And I think we're in the middle of one right now. Is this the one that will birth the, the rapture and the tribulation period? I don't know. Maybe there'll be a more intense one around the corner. But I think we're in the middle of it. And, and we're going to be talking specifically about false teaching in the last days and what happens with false teaching during these these um, uh, contractions that happen, these sorrows that take place um, that are birth pains. All right, so I look forward to seeing you guys in about an hour. We'll have our service. I'll be teaching in about an hour and 25 minutes. Uh, God bless you guys. 
Love you. Stay close to Jesus. Um, endeavor to walk in the Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Bible says against there is against such there is no law, and we want to walk in those things. All right. So I will see you guys later on. I am out. We'll have another Q&A, Lord willing, on Wednesday night, 4 o'clock. God bless you guys.